Well, I invite you to turn with me to the letter of Jude. Maybe you've had the opportunity to read through Jude again this last week. It doesn't take you long uh, to do that. You get through all of Jude's letter. Jude has shared with us the purpose by which he is writing, why he sent this to the churches. We don't know the specific church that Jude is writing to. This letter would have been passed around to Christians uh, in that uh, area. But uh, he, he set aside his pen. He had every intention to write something different, but there's a pressing need that moves him to pen what we have before us. So Jude can't help but do what he is appealing the church to do, and that is to contend for the faith. Uh, he's beginning to call out those who have crept into the church with no intention of living uh, like those who have been redeemed by the grace of God. Uh, they're twisting that grace. In fact, they don't understand that grace at all if they think that living this way is inconsequential or has no, no bearing on the future. Uh, Jude says something quite the contrary. And the verses we're going to look at this morning are really an elaboration uh, on verse 4, uh, the judgment that is certain for those living in this way, pushing this belief or lifestyle uh, on those in the church. And so Jude is going to circle back around to what contending for the faith may look like. Um, but for the bulk of this letter, verses 5 through 16, his focus is on these in the church, these intruders in the church. And uh, so really should take verses 5 through 16 together. They should be read together. Next week we'll read them all together. Uh, but today we're going to pause after verse 10. So here is Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. This is Jude's words to the church. A warning to the church. Let's pray together. Lord God, we are grateful that You would share with us Your very heart, what it is You love and value, what we are to believe, how we are to serve according to Your Word. 
Lord, we submit ourselves now to this Word, coming under its examination, its purpose, and its working for us. Lord, we know that You will accomplish this purpose in us and in Your church. And so, we plead with You to do that now. We ask Your help as we are attentive to this Word, that You would guide our understanding and and guide the way that we apply this Word. May be helpful and truthful. Lord, block out that which is unhelpful and untruthful. And speak, as we have sung just a few minutes ago. Speak, O Lord, Your truth to us. Work it deep in us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Napoleon Bonaparte was a very uh, effective leader. He was a very daring leader. An excellent leader among French forces. Napoleon um, was promoted quickly through the military ranks in France. And then, I think it was 1799, through a coup, he assumed leadership, took over as the premier leader in France. And um, he really did consider you know, himself quite highly, and so in 1804 he had his own ceremony put on where he would um, be crowned emperor. And so he led the, the armies of France through, through Central Europe and Western Europe just claiming one victory after another. And we see the, the French Empire expanding uh, almost in an unstoppable way at times. And in the summer of 1815, Napoleon moved his troops uh, just south of Brussels to a village called Waterloo. And it was there that he was going to do battle with a combined force of British, Dutch, German, and Belgian forces. Um, Napoleon had been in many battles. He kind of knew what he wanted to see and expect. And so on that summer morning around Waterloo, it had been raining the day before, and he decided it's too wet. I don't want to get too muddy. Um, we're just going to wait to attack. And so he waited the four or six hours until it was midday before he moved into Waterloo. But that turned out to be a critical mistake. Because just by waiting, it allowed further reinforcements from uh, the British. And even though uh, Napoleon's army put up quite a fight, they were dispersed in chaos. And it's recorded that Napoleon himself uh, rode away in tears. It was the end of his great military career. And today, we still make reference to this historical event. Maybe not so much so today because it's not taught as often. Um, But when we say things like, it was a Waterloo moment, or this was his Waterloo, or her Waterloo, meaning that it was really the end. There was no coming back from this. It was a failure. And so our perception, our, our judgments being informed by this past event, even if we weren't there and someone else has to tell us about it, it carries meaning for us. This is essentially what Jude is doing in this next section of the letter. He's sharing past events, giving examples that have a present context. They mean something right now for the church. And Jude's a helpful Teacher, preacher. So he's going to pile them on. Use several pictures here as part of this main body. So to keep the picture straight, to follow Jude's argument, we're going to remember God's ways and apply God's message 
in verses 5 through 10. Remembering God's ways, applying God's message. We're slowly reviewing the Shorter Catechism as a family using that book, uh, A Good Confession. Maybe some of you have been reading that, working through it. And we're up to question answer three, so I haven't been in it too long. Uh, but it, it asks, what do the Scriptures principally teach? And the answer is, well, the Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and then what duty God requires of man. But through these pictures that Jude uses, what we are to believe concerning God comes to the fore. It shows us what God is like. It shows us His ways. He is gracious and holy. He is a righteous God. And in His holiness and in His justice, He must punish evil. And those who would rebel against His authority in their sin. Not just for a little while, but for eternity. So he calls the church to remember here uh, in these verses. He gives three pictures, verses 5-7. through uh, All pictures that they should know well. Uh, either from the Old Testament Scriptures or from Jewish tradition. Jude, Jude makes reference to both uh, of uh, those sources in these verses. Remember, think again about what you know of God. How He relates to His people. Not just His people, how He relates to all people, all His creation. He says, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Uh, this is a verse that's often referenced to show that Jesus just doesn't come into existence in the New Testament. I mean, He comes in the flesh. We read of His time on earth and His earthly ministry in the Gospels. Um, but He was very present and active in the Old Testament. And the original language actually reads kurios, reads the Lord when we start to take the Greek variants and we start to, to look at how the scribes have interpreted this over the years and the end of verse 4, that's what brings the translators to put Jesus in the Bible you have in front of you if you have an ESV um, translation. Um, Jesus is the only Master and Lord. End of verse 4. So the kurios immediately following means Jesus. He was Lord in the Old Testament. He was present in delivering the Hebrew people out of Egypt. So, so for the church, this really reinforces the deity of Christ. Not the main point for Jude here, but, but don't let that escape. Jesus is God. He is the great I Am. The one who is. The one who always has been. Always will be. That should move us to worship. It should move us to adore the Lord Jesus, who is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. So here's an event in the past, has present implications, and Jude's using this to make his moral point. A lot of details surrounding the Exodus that we don't have here. You know, is this talking about after uh, the people made a golden calf or worshiping the golden calf? Is it talking about? You know, after they refuse to go into the promised land, we, we don't know, but Jude's message is clear. Those who rebelled against the Lord, who do not, did not look to Him in faith, who did not trust His Word, these were destroyed. Very people that came out of Egypt. But they rejected their 
deliverer in disobedience. Really trampling upon His kindness. Trampling upon His grace. They never see the promised land for this. So here's Jude's point. Church, this is happening with certain people in your midst. You are not immune from the consequence of sin. You may even profess certain things. You may even profess that Jesus is the deliverer. That He's the Savior. But if you do not persevere in faith and your life, not a demonstration that that faith is genuine, well then the judgment of God awaits. So like the New Testament church, we need to hear this. Just because someone belongs to the right community, belongs to the church, which in itself is a tremendous privilege. It's where we should belong. It's where we want to belong. Among God's people in the community of the redeemed. That does not mean that one can escape the judgment of God any more than the Israelites coming out of Egypt. I heard again uh, the last several weeks something very common, especially in times of grief, sadness, uh, that a certain person was baptized when they were a child. Uh, it was shared with me very openly, very Publicly, because it gave, it gave this person a sense of comfort and peace of mind. And, and I'm very grateful that that was recalled because at least it is a leaning, it is a, a movement towards the grace and the mercy of God who knows the heart, who knows those who are His own. And at the same time, when it's most often, you know, what is most often believed when someone shares that with me is that because this person was baptized when they were younger, then they have an eternal security in heaven. And that's what gives the peace of mind. And what I often want to say, I don't in those contexts usually. But did that person believe the promises of God made in their baptism? Did they live out, did they live into that baptism? If they were engaged to to be the Lord's, raised among His people, did they say, I do, and commit to a life of faith in Christ? Did their lives demonstrate the genuineness of that faith? Baptism is a gracious gift of God. It should not be neglected by the covenant community of God's people, but the sprinkling of water does not guarantee any eternal inheritance in heaven. So with this picture, we have, we have a call to persevere in faith, to hold on to God's promises to the, to the very end. That's not something we're going to do in our own strength. We won't hold on in and of ourselves, but in the strength that God gives and the grace that He apportions to us. So the second picture is in verse 6. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling He's kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Really challenging for us to know what Jude is referring to in this verse. Um, There's a large group of folks, scholars, commentators, normal people like us, who conclude that Jude is actually referring to Genesis 6, um, which itself is one of the most difficult passages in the Old Testament to interpret. um, Where the sons of God... Uh, took the daughters of men and committed 
sexual immorality. So the understanding is that the sons of God were angelic beings, maybe taking on human form, which we see in other places in Scripture, and then having you know, children with women. And by, by doing so, then they have rejected God's authority and the boundaries that he has put in place. So that the sexual immorality of angels then would link to the immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah in the next verse. I think, you know, there's some merits uh, to that. Another group, uh, more in the Reformed stream, would probably land here, would interpret Genesis 6 differently and conclude that Jude is not actually referring to those events here, uh, but to the rebellion of angels in heaven, uh, rejecting God's authority. They want autonomy. They want to have the power that, that God has. Who is God really to, to tell them or to put them in their place? And so they are brought down to the pit. Um, Jude may be alluding to the prophetic word in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, where the pride of the powerful, even the cherubim in heaven, uh, is cast to the earth. Um, it's also quite plausible here, because Jude's going to do this again in a couple of verses that he has Jewish tradition in mind in an apocryphal writing uh, that's been handed down. Uh, the, the testament of Naphtali or one Enoch gives further details about uh, the angels abandoning their proper uh, place. So Jude doesn't give the details. His focus is on their end, uh, on the judgment. And I'll mention Jewish tradition some more in just a second, but Jude's point is clear. Those who reject the authority of God, who do not acknowledge His rule, the boundaries that He has established will face eternal judgment. For their rebellion, these angels, I mean that language, they're in a horrible state right now under gloomy darkness. And at the day of judgment, it doesn't get any less horrible. We hear in Revelation 20 that the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. A lake of fire, the destination for all those who are not written in the Lamb's book of life. And Jude continues with a third picture here, the immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of this eternal punishment. We can see that event in Genesis 19, where the men of Sodom wanted to know intimately the angels who were under Lot's protection. And one of the interpretations here is that the angels committing immorality uh, with humans in verse 6 is then reversed in verse 7. So now you have humans pursuing sexual immorality with angels in verse, uh, in verse 7. That sounds reasonable. It may be where Jude was heading here, but I- I'm leaning toward the rebellion against God's authority in verse 6 and then sexual immorality in verse 7. One of the reasons for that, and I think it's a strong one, the men coming to Lot's home did not know that they were angels. They were believed them to be men like any other uh, men. And, so, and Jude also says to the surrounding cities indulged uh, in this immorality, which included this pursuit of unnatural desire, or other flesh. Okay, so it's because of this pornea, which included homosexual intentions, that judgment was certain. Um, and here, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. It's not specifically to Jude's point, which is the just judgment of immorality. 
But, but the language used to interpret this, I think, is very helpful. This language of unnatural desires. Important for us to understand because it's influencing conversations. Conversations that are happening within the church. Conversations at the denominational level. Conversations that you may be having or may have to have uh, with family, friends, in the workplace. Um, That's the thinking that surrounds sexual orientation and desire. And God's good and wise design, by His authority, male and females have a good and natural desire. Male for female, female for male. It's good and beautiful and natural. God has designed it this way. But sin has tainted everything. Sin distorts everything. Everything about us physically, psychologically, spiritually. We're totally depraved. Maybe language you've heard before. So now even our desires, our inclinations are twisted by sin. And so the desire itself, whether it is male for male or female for female, is in itself an unnatural and disordered desire. It's not in agreement with God's design. So it must be turned from, repented of, whenever and however often that unnatural desire is present. So stay with me, I'm going to land this. There are many in the church today who believe that a same-sex attraction, that disordered desire, is not itself sin, but it's only when that desire is is acted upon that it becomes sin. And I can't get into the nuances of temptation and, and sin right now, but what we need to hear is the danger that's before us in that. The thinking that maybe we're not as depraved as we are. And the strong pull to normalize that which is unnatural or disordered. If we start to do this as believers in Jesus, then we can inadvertently or perhaps quite intentionally begin to identify with our sin or consider it just part of who we are instead of the need to repent, to put that sin to death daily, maybe even more more often than that. Let me give you a quick example. Uh, my neighbor has a Camaro sitting in his driveway, and I love that thing. I drive by that Camaro, and I think, I'd like to drive that Camaro. I want that Camaro. I'll even give him my, my RAV if he'll trade it. <laughs> He's never offered to do that. I've never asked. But so there, there is, even if it's just momentarily, there is that little bit of coveting. I'm not grateful for the mobility and the working vehicle that I happen to be driving. Instead of thanking the Lord for that, I covet, even if it is... Um, Briefly. Now, if I drive by twice a day and I do that for a year, and that's always there, I could start to think, you know what? Um, this coveting is so frequent. Um, it happens so often, it's really just a part of who I am. I, I'm just a coveting Christian. But that is not who God says I am. That is not how His Word describes me. Paul says, for any who are in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. I am not a coveting Christian. I'm a Christian who may struggle with coveting every day. The old doesn't just disappear overnight, or maybe even in this life. 
But when I confess that sin, there's forgiveness. There's an abundance of God's grace. I could put that sin to death by the power of the Holy Spirit in me. A power that is fueled by the Gospel itself. Romans 1. So Westminster Confession, just give us some more language. Those who are called of God, given His Spirit, continually being sanctified, says through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, the dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed. The lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified. So I hope you can see the parallel here between this and unnatural desire, like same-sex attraction. I'm not sure it's a perfect comparison, but I think it's consistent. Regardless of the complexities of nature and, and nurture, how that may contribute to that, those desires remain disordered and sinful. So in the moment, it may be very infrequent, may be constant. The one who acknowledges the authority of God desires nothing less than to, to be obedient to the Master is saying, Lord, free me from these unnatural desires. Reorder my desires so that they would honor and glorify You who made me as male or female. Um, important understanding for us. I've already taken up way too much time talking about that. But Jude's language here in recalling this Old Testament events is helpful um, for us. Reminding us, reminding the church of what they are to believe concerning God. Not all things concerning God, but he's showing a pattern here of divine uh, judgment for those who indulge in sin. Um, so hear that from these verses. There are consequences for persisting in sin. Temporary consequences, certainly but even more so, eternal consequences. Then we move uh, to verse 8. He starts to apply this message, um, applying this divine pattern presently in the church. I was thinking of my daughter who's taking a tracing paper with, uh, and a book that has these embroidered designs, and she was laying the tracing paper on it and, and, and tracing the designs so that she can use it to transfer to an article of clothing. I think it was a shoe that she was going to, to use. Uh, but something that's been completed by someone now being brought into the present. Now, it could be used by her. Jude's tracing. He's making this bridge here between the sins of those in the church and what has happened in the past. Yet in like manner, these people also, so he's referring to the intruders, verse 4, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh. There's verse 7. Reject authority. There's verse 6. And blaspheme the glorious ones. Coming in verse 9. It's here in verse 9 that Jude seems to make reference to this Jewish tradition again. We go to Deuteronomy 34 and we look at the death of Moses. There's nothing about this conversation between um, Michael the archangel and Satan. But to the Jews, in Jewish tradition, this would be known. I mean, Michael was the top dog angel for them. Um, and we go back to one of the earliest church fathers. This would have been Clement, so we're, we're still in the first century claim that Jude was quoting an apocryphal work here called uh, The Assumption of Moses. We don't have any remaining manuscripts from this. Uh, so it's hard to be sure. But that tradition communicated that Michael was having this conversation with Satan, and Satan said because Moses was a failure, because he was a murderer, then his body didn't deserve that burial. His body belonged to him as the devil. Um, Again, we don't have the source, so it's hard to know for sure. But it would appear that, that Jude 
believed this conversation to have happened, but even if he did not, the story was familiar and would make his point. It would be like me taking a snippet out of you know, Star Wars or something out of Harry Potter. I don't have to believe those stories to be true, but they may say some true things. It would be helpful in making that point. So that just a quick note there on extra biblical sources like, like the Apocrypha, writings that are well known to the Jews, not considered part of, of God's inspired words. They can say true things. Jude may have believed that, but he is not endorsing or assuming these hidden writings, that's where we get the word Apocrypha from, not assuming them to be Scripture. Makes reference to them. Paul does this. He does this in Acts chapter 17, Titus 1, uh, to make a point for that audience. So the reference is now a part of Scripture, but the source is not. Um, We do find angels arguing with the devil in Zechariah 3. There, it's actually, and the language that Michael uses is found in Zechariah 3. In that case, it's the Lord who is rebuking uh, the devil for um, his accusations against Joshua the high priest. So instead of Michael making a charge against Satan, which probably would have been true and deserved, he does not presume upon the authority of God to make it. So these intruders in the church, they have way overstepped their bounds. They're assuming authority to make slanderous judgments about angelic beings. Those are the glorious ones. When Michael himself would not do that. And Jude wraps up this argument by saying they blaspheme all they don't understand. They don't understand the angelic beings. They don't understand these spiritual matters. They certainly don't understand the faith once for all delivered to the saints. They're controlled by their sinful instincts. Let's remember that sin is irrational. Sin is dehumanizing. The more sin is entertained, the more animal-like we become. One commentator said they're incapable of acting on the basis of anything other than their base desires. And Jude says this all comes from relying on their dreams, which means they're not relying on God's Word. They're not trusting in God's Word. Another parallel here to the prophets in Jeremiah 23. They're living in sexual immorality and rejecting God's authority based on uh, dreams. Let me read just a little bit from Jeremiah 23. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. And just a couple verses later. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, It shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, No disaster shall come upon you. Jude concludes quite the opposite, doesn't he? Disaster will come. Eternal punishment is sure for those who despise the word of the Lord. So it's God's word that we look to. It's upon His word that we stand. And when you you believe that the Lord is speaking to you, the Lord is telling you to 
to go somewhere, the Lord's telling you to, to say something, and test that spirit. Okay, run that voice through the grid of God's Word and the motivation of the Gospel. It's that Gospel that we keep in front of us. The Gospel that we have been delivered from our sin, given new life in Christ. This Gospel that we rest in after hearing what Jude is saying. What are we to believe concerning God? He is just. He will punish the ungodly. All those who reject Him in sin. Whether it's an angelic being, whether it's leaders in the church or anyone else. God will judge those who reject this Gospel. But He saves those who turn to Him. Those who cry out to Jesus. I need you. I need you, O Christ, or this is my end. He saves. Consider the mercy and the love of our God. He has made a way that the punishment of eternal fire that we just read about is not the final state for His own. How has He done this? Through Jesus. Jesus, the one who saves His people. People like you and like me who have rejected God's ways. Jesus Himself is the way. He has lived the way. By His death, He has opened the way of forgiveness and life. You know, it's one thing to remember God's ways, to know something in our minds. But another thing altogether, to actually believe it from the heart and believe that those ways are good and right. Actually, to, to bear out what it is we know and see it shape who we are. So hear the call to obedience. Persevere in the truth of the gospel. Because the one who made you, the one who knows you, the one who has delivered you, he perseveres in keeping you. That's where Jude begins and ends this letter. We are kept by Jesus Christ. Now keep yourself in the love of Christ. God's grace demands nothing less than this. For only by His grace is this judgment removed. Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask that You would grant us ears to hear, minds to understand, the hearts to embrace Your Word to us. We thank You, O God, that You have made a way. For those who look to You in dependence and faith, for those who trust in what You have done through the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, there is life now and forever. Lord, may this move our hearts, move our hands, our feet, our mouths in obedience to persevere in faith. Lord, we can do nothing less for You who have loved us and delivered us in Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.